from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroy Hawkins. Coming up first. All the ones in Gisborne are in their um, accommodation. They are back on the farms or all the vineyards. New Zealand's Ministry for Business says all Pacific RSC workers are safe and accounted for, and there's plenty of work to do in Hawke's Bay. Also. President Mamau and his government agreeing to come back totally. Uh, it is a very encouraging period in my uh, revenge into leadership. Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka and his element at the Pacific Forum Leaders Retreat and... He was a very key player in the constitutional reform that started in uh, 2010. Reflect on the life and work of Sitiveni Halapua, one of Tonga's greatest minds. New Zealand's Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment says over 3,800 Pacific Islanders working under the recognised seasonal employer scheme in the cyclone-impacted Hawke's Bay region have all been accounted for and there are plenty of jobs for them in the short term. At the height of the cyclone, images of Pacific RSC workers stranded on roofs with angry floodwaters rising around them caught the national attention and caused a lot of worry and concern for their families back home especially with the communications blackout after the storm. I spoke with the General Manager of Refugee and Migrant Services at the Ministry, Fiona Whiteridge, about the current situation for RSE workers. In, term, in terms of the workers in the Hawke's Bay, there's about 3,871 workers in the Hawke's Bay and we've got 179 workers in Gisborne. Um, of those workers, all the ones in Gisborne are in their um, accommodation. Uh, they are back on the farms or, or the vineyards where they're, where they're meant to be. Of the ones in the Hawke's Bay, at the moment, most are back. We've got about um, 177 workers that are still in the evacuation centres, but a large majority of those are all with one employer, and we're just waiting for the power to be turned back on, and then they'll actually have approved accommodation that they can go to. So a key focus for us has been making sure we're working really closely with employers and industry to make sure that there's really good, safe accommodation for the workers to go back to, um, so they've got a really safe place to be and to stay and to continue working from. Have there been any deaths or serious injuries amongst the RSC community? No, no, there hasn't been any. As far as I'm aware, there's no injuries at all and certainly no deaths. One of the things we really focused on to start with when the cyclone went through was to make sure that we knew where all the workers were. And I think there were some early reports that uh, 12 workers we couldn't find on the first night. That was our first priority the next morning to find those workers. So we can say that all workers are safe, they're accounted for, and they're being really well looked after. That's great news. Um, in terms of their 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 welfare, we've, we've spoken to a few um, RSC workers and RSC uh, uh, managers of of workers, and they've said they 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 well looked after. They've they've got plenty of clothes, warm clothes, food, um, and are overwhelmed by the generosity yeah. with some of the words that we we we've been getting. But yeah. of course, that uncertainty about their future was the main thing. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that has been amazing is how the Pacific community across the country has come together to support these workers and also how industry and employers from across the country have also come in to support that region. So everyone has been phenomenal in terms of how they've come together. In terms of the future, what I can say is that 
for now, there is work for all the RSC workers in the Hawke's Bay. That work is there. And whether that work is cleaning up uh, with the employers, the local orchards, um, or actually back to the regular work that they were there to do, there is plenty of work there in the short term. In the medium to long term, it's probably too early to say quite yet. You know, I mean, for some growers, their orchards are still underwater and they're still figuring out the extent of the damage. But what we've been doing really actively is been working with industry and employers across the country, and there is more than enough work across the country. So if the work was to run out in the Hawke's Bay in the medium to long term, and if the workers wanted to go somewhere else, then there's certainly opportunities and options for them. Now, for um, we've heard also our reports of contingents of RSC workers that were about to be deployed from the islands to New Zealand mm. being put on yep. hold. Um, it, that's the that's across the board, is that, or is that an isolated group? I think that's an isolated group. So what we've been doing is we've been working uh, with uh, Pacific Island countries and employers and for every flight that's been coming in, we've been making sure where the workers are due to go to. If they're due to go to other parts of New Zealand, so the South Island, for example, they can just go straight there. For those that are due to come into the Hawke's Bay, Tairawhiti or Northland, um, we've just been working to make sure that there is it's safe for them to go there, the employers they're meant to go there are able to take them their suitable accommodation. So we're really just working on a flight-by-flight basis um, to make sure that it's absolutely safe for everyone and there is a place for everyone to go when they get here. Initially, also, um, uh, one of the issues was contacting family and um, uh, reassuring family members that everyone is safe. Um, uh, are Are you satisfied that that's now something that's been happening in and people are in touch with people, uh, families that they need to be in touch with? Absolutely. As far as I know, that's happening. I'm not hearing any reports that it's not. Um, we've got people on the ground both in Hawke's Bay and in Tairawhiti, so um, we've got people there to help facilitate should there be any issues with that. But as far as I know, everyone's been able to contact their families and stay connected. I mean, communications has been a problematic, as we all know, over the last um, last week or so, but I understand it's now all really well up and running, and it's been pretty key to make sure that people can get in touch with their families and let them know that they're safe. Again, great news. Um, one, one last question that's sort of off the topic of RSC, but still sort of related to futures of Pacific workers in the country. And um, that's, we spoke, um, one of our journalists spoke with um, a forestry worker, Fijian forestry worker in Tairawhiti, and um, they were on a specific forestry work visa um, and unable to work because of the situation, current situation and were um, inquiring whether a variation to their visa conditions would be possible uh, to allow them to continue to earn money uh, in the short, maybe, to medium term. Okay. Um, I'm not uh, in charge of that area. What, what I can say is that as of today, we've got immigration staff up in Tairawhiti, so there'll be people there that are able to work with them and work through um, the conditions of that visa, and then um, we're working as Immigration New Zealand to make things as easy and as um, quick as possible for for workers. But I'm not across a, that those particular workers, those Fiji and forestry workers, I sort of look after RSC. For the latest news and information on the recovery and rebuild, head on over to our website, rnz.co.nz. Fiji's Prime Minister, Sitiveni Rambuka, says he's enjoying the role of being a unifying figure in the Pacific.
Mr. Rambuka, who was elected to government in December, has been credited for his pivotal role in Kiribati's return to the Pacific Islands Forum. Speaking at the start of this week's leaders' retreat in Nandi, Rambuka said it felt like the good old days when he benefited from the wisdom of past leaders. He told RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis he's now duty-bound to navigate the Pacific canoe and pass on that knowledge to his contemporaries. First of all, how have um, the meetings gone so far? They have gone very well. We, uh, we share common uh, interests, we share common... Uh, they're not really problems, that, uh, but things we should be aware of. We call them uatale-tale uh, or submerged reefs because they are there. We just need to know that they are there and navigate widely in our Pacific waka or wanga or canoe. So uh, I'm enjoying it, like uh, the good old days. In the good old days, I was uh, benefiting from the wisdom of the older leaders who were here there at the time. Now I am duty-bound to pass on some of that uh, knowledge and wisdom to my contemporaries of today. And Fiji, particularly yourself, played a pivotal role in the Silver Agreement, as well as creating this moment. Now that it's arrived, that it's here, how do you feel? I feel very good. I feel uh, good about what uh, was attempted in the past, about the Silver Agreement, uh, that was not uh, fully uh, signed. Now that uh, we've had that trip to the Kiribati uh, and uh, President Mamau and his government agreeing to come back totally, uh, it is a very encouraging period in my uh, venture into or re-venture into leadership. How significant was your role in bringing Kiribati back into the forum? I think it was there. Uh, it has always been, uh, been there. Uh, it, it just had to happen and I was uh, rightly poised at the time. Uh, to make it happen and uh, uh, there had to be some uh, face saving on Fiji's part and uh, other regional uh, governments that might have caused the misunderstanding so somebody who was not involved in creating the misunderstanding should come in and uh, say look it was just a misunderstanding this is what we really wanted and we get it back. And Benny Winder how have your discussions gone regarding West Papua? The West Papua discussion uh, uh, went very well uh, they understand uh, the international uh, ramifications of these discussions and, and also the objectives. It's been done before with people moving from uh, an outside uh, of the organization uh, position uh, through to uh, observer and associate membership and uh, then on to full membership. We must be conscious of uh, uh, sovereignty issues and considerations. Will you be supporting their bid for full membership of the Melanesia Spearhead Group? That is also something that we had done in the past. We had the uh, FLNKS as full members of the MSG uh, before New Caledonia as such became part of uh, the MSG. Uh, yes, we will support them because they are Melanesians. It's happened before. Are you hopeful it will happen again? I am more hopeful. I'm not uh, taking it for granted. Uh, there are the dynamics um, may have changed slightly, uh, but the principles are the same. And also, um, regarding the review of Fiji's repressive media laws, some of your coalition partners um, campaigned on repealing Fiji's media act. Sin and since coming into power, you're now saying you will review it. Is that backtracking on an election promise for Fiji? No, people? it's not. Uh, reviewing could mean eventually repealing it. We have to understand how it is uh, faring in this modern uh, uh, day of uh, media freedom, 
how uh, how have other uh, administrations advanced their own association with the media. I intend to change it, and a change means uh, a review and make amendments to it. It will certainly be a freer medium. Media. Okay. And finally, your message to the world. This is a conference of unity. What is your message to world leaders, world powers? Now that the PIF is back together, uh, my uh, my message would be: when we are dealing with uh, each other and on a bilateral basis, we look for mutuality, and we are looking at uh, group. Yeah. We look for commonalities. Thank you for your time right. and all the best. Vinaka. The Pacific Islands Forum Special Leaders Summit concluded late on Friday. We'll have a full breakdown of its outcomes on the Pacific page of our website, rnzi.com. Tonga lost one of its greatest minds last month with the passing of Sitiveni Halapua. Dr. Halapua, who was 73, was an academic who became a politician. He was well known throughout the Pacific, but it was as a force in the democracy movement in Tonga where he really made his mark. Don Wiseman spoke with RNZ Pacific's Tonga correspondent Kalafi Moala about Dr. Halapua's achievements. For Tonga, for example, he was a very key player in the reform, constitutional reform that started in uh, 2010 and uh, changed our system so that our government be appointed no longer by the monarch but by parliament. He played a key role in that. And then, of course, he had a, a session in parliament himself. Many people in Tonga thought he might become the prime minister at the time in form of government, but he had a, a very formidable uh, opponent at the time, which was Akeliti Pohiva. So he still, though, became a part of that government at the time. So he played a very key role and has always been a great commentator and a leader that didn't take sides one way or the other, but really worked for the betterment of the, of the people of Tonga and the government. He was a highly educated man, of course, uh, an academic, yes. and he was often at conferences and whatever around the region, wasn't he? From his academic side, what's his key contribution? Well, he was based at Eastwood Centre in Hawaii, the University of Hawaii there. And Eastwood Centre, of course, is a, a regional institution that worked uh, regionally with all the, the countries in the Pacific and even had an outreach into Asia. But his key contribution from Eastwood Centre was the fact he came up with a, a concept that he called the Talanoa concept. Talanoa in Tongan in, in some Pacific countries means to, to dialogue, to talk. Talano also means in some of the Pacific cultures, I um, mean, storytelling. And so he came up with this concept, particularly at a time where there were quite a number of frictions and conflicts happening in the Pacific. And he proposed to sit down in Talanoa and have a conversation. And he carried it out very effectively in Micronesia, some of the, the countries of Micronesia, in Niue, in the Cook Islands, and of course in, in Polynesia, in Tonga. Even in Vanuatu, uh, he uh, was a key player in there in, in trying to resolve political conflicts or social conflicts by introducing that we don't need to uh, uh, preach at each other, shout at each other, but we need uh, what we call in Tonga, put the mat out here, let's sit down in a, like a cover circle and talk about it and discuss things and come to an agreement. So that, that was a, a practice that we... Uh, pioneered and it really went well throughout the Pacific. 
that really, in a way, brings us back to his push for democratic reforms or the, the involvement he had with that process in Tonga because he later wanted a different approach to the way in which the government was structured. He wanted a collegial-style government, didn't he? He saw yes, that. That's correct. He saw a collegial style as, as really the only way that a combative country like Tonga could That's could sit correct. down and make progress. I remember listening to him one time where he came up with a message at a conference in Tonga and, and basically said, we can have reform, we can make social changes, we can adjust political systems peacefully. We don't have to be confrontational. We don't have to fight each other and shed blood on the street. There was something so so brilliant. And of course, he uh, he was able to carry that out in many ways in, in a Tongan context, trying to advocate the fact that we need to sit down with the nobles and with the monarch and then with the people and talk and see what the common interest that we need to work toward. We need not as a people to stand up and uh, count out the monarch, count out the nobles, but they have been a part of our structure for thousands of years. And so uh, Steve Annie was a reformer uh, par excellence. He was a reformer that believed changes can be brought about in a peaceful way, in a dialogue that's inclusive of everyone in the social and political structure. At the end of his political career, he became involved in a scheme to improve transport around Tonga and put a lot of effort, I think, into creating freighters that would be powered by the wind. The idea really was to have people involved in the construction and manning it and everything else, providing remote areas of Tonga with supplies on a more regular basis than they were able to get at the moment. Is that scheme still in place? Yes, that is in place, although he struggled and was frustrated at the beginning. Uh, For example, his family roots originally come from the northernmost islands of Tonga, the Niwa. Uh, islands, which actually they're a lot closer to Samoa than they are to Tonga. So he was concerned of how the people of the newer need to have their supplies constantly being uh, supplied. So he worked with a, a, a local group to get a boat, like a canoe-style, a bigger primary, in fact, to take supplies to Newark. Uh, that didn't work well, and so another group purchased a boat, an actual sailing boat, for the newest, and that's still running. But what happened with Halapua was I think he was challenged for the fact that we need to move beyond the realm of just talking and reform and, and bringing changes, but we need to do something practical, technical, that will make a difference in the lives of people. And that's why he was involved in his later years in something quite practical, like in transportation, the outer islands, especially, who have their supplies there. And when they are, they are very vulnerable to hurricanes and cyclones and things like that, that they need to be taken care of and be warned and reconstruction taking place. So he was quite involved in his later years in those kind of projects. The head of the University of the South Pacific's journalism program says there are concerns about an ongoing review of Fiji's repressive media laws, but they're giving the new coalition government the benefit of the doubt. Media freedom in the Pacific country took a dive in 2010 with the introduction of the Media Industry Development Act by the Fiji First Government led by former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. 
It's excessively punitive with disproportionately large fines and even jail time for editors and publishers. The new coalition government under Siti Rambuka has promised to review the laws, but Shailendra Singh says seeing is believing. I spoke with Professor Singh and began by asking him to describe Fiji's media environment before 2010. Okay, so before, see, Fiji media before the change, media was relatively free, certainly freer than before the Media Act was introduced in June 2010. I think I wrote a paper in which I described the media freedom situation in Fiji, media rights in Fiji, as to being almost on the same level as Australia and New Zealand, which is saying a lot compared to what has happened after June 2010. Um, Like no one was really afraid to speak openly, and there were no punitive laws in place, and the the scene was quite robust. There were a lot of discussions. And there were adequate laws in place to take care of the situation where the media to step out of line. For example, defamation. So the Media Act, as you know, was implemented in June 2010. And uh, we did some research on the 10th anniversary uh, of, the, of the Media Act. We thought we'd look into the Act. And uh, what we found was a plethora of problems. And of course, you know, PNG is about to introduce its own Media Act. And we feel that some of our findings are relevant for PNG as well. The first thing that we were concerned about, I mean, this is way back in 2010, June, uh, in 2010, was the lack of consultation with the media sector before the act was implemented. This is the Fiji media sector I'm talking about. Now, PNG, I've read, has extended consultations by a week, and even that is deemed insufficient. Now, in Fiji, the media were given less than three hours to provide f- feedback on a really complex 50-page legal document. Imagine that, just, you know, two and a half hours, I think it was. Um, So that was one major concern. Right from the outset, there were problems with the lack of consultation. Okay, in PNG, at least some time is given. Maybe I think it's about two weeks in total, if I'm not mistaken. They said they'll extend it by a week. Uh, So that's one problem. Now, the second problem we found in our analysis uh, was that the government officials' powers in the Fiji Media Act meant that the media had actually transited from self-regulation to government regulation. So you were asking about what the situation was before the Media Act came into place. So prior to the Media Act, the the media were self-regulated. After the Media Act, it became government-regulated. I think the only country in the South Pacific where the media was government-regulated. Media self-regulation is a hallmark of a free media in a democratic situation, okay? It's a a hallmark of democracy. And government-regulated media is kind of seen as undemocratic in a democratic setting or in a democratic country. So since independence and even before independence, the Fiji media, as I was saying, was quite free based on the fourth estate model, watchdog of government. Uh, Once the media came under government control, it represented a profound change in Fiji's media history. So the question before us today is whether PNG is going through the same process and will it also end up like Fiji? Yes, no, very important points raised there. I remember coming to Fiji from Solomon Islands, I think it was a year after the the media um, uh, act was brought in. I think it was still a decree, I think it was called at the time. And I noticed the difference 
in our Solomon Islands newspapers in terms of content and what was the front page and all of this. And I just re saw the difference in what the front page was and the different stories inside were um, quite quite pro-government and even like government releases. And I sort of asked, so I asked my auntie, like, did you see anything wrong with the paper layout or the... And she said, no, that's the news. Like, you know, for a normal, just a normal person reading the news. So I, I, what my question is, what was the impact of... Uh, this act of this law on the media landscape, but also the, the type of, of information that was being consumed by the Fijian public. So, yeah, the media became much more subdued than before uh, because of the punitive measures in the media, in the Fiji Media Act. Uh, they were not willing to take risks because not only was there possibility of steep fines, but also jail terms for the editors and the publishers, as well as the broadcasters. Uh, one of the few changes to the Media Act after a number of years was that the penalties, the punitive measures against journalists was removed. So if you are a rank-and-file ordinary journalist, you were kind of immune. There were no fines or jail terms against you if you breached the Act. But this was seen as a half measure or ineffective in that the penalties for the editors and publishers remained intact. So this was seen as a very clever, indirect way of imposing censorship. So the censorship burden, so to speak, was passed on to the editors and the publishers. Because they were exposed and because they were at risk themselves, uh, it was thought that they would keep the reporters in line. So they would impose censorship on the work of their journalists for, their, for the sake of their own safety and for the uh, organization's sake, in order not to incur any fines. Because, see, the, the, the media organizations could be fined up to $100,000. Now, we, in our research, we found this to be excessive. Given the small size of the Fiji media sector and the low profit margins, as well as the low salaries of uh, editorial staff, the fines seem quite disproportionate. And this was also against international benchmark, which calls for the penalties to be proportionate to the level of, not only the level of offending, as well as, you know, the income, the income levels. And these are, the, these are all the things we think that PNG should look out for in its own draft media act. Now, Fiji's in, had a change in, in government, and um, it seems a change in attitude towards uh, the media act. There's been some reconciliatory ceremonies held um, uh, a lot of talanoa around the aspect. Um, what's the opportunity here and what, what are the pathways forward for reforming Fiji's Media Act? Now, the new government has been making the right noises. In one of my articles, I wrote that the Media Act, the Fiji Media Act, is still in place, uh, but it is effectively redundant. This is because the new government is unlikely to invoke that Media Act having criticized it so much. Uh, and also, they are already now working on a new media act. Now, initially, I remember during campaigning, the opposition parties, the deputy prime minister, Mr. Bill Ngavoka, he was talking about repealing the act completely. But now they are talking about revising or replacing the media act. So the media act will still be in place, but hopefully it will be a watered-down version that will not impede on the role of the news media, which plays a very important part in any democratic setting.
So it is really essential that we have a strong and robust media. It is also important that uh, the media also shows some consideration for the Fiji context. Yes, we agree that we've got a cool culture in Fiji and we also have ethnic tensions in Fiji. And these are the things that the news media have to factor in in their daily work. So the opportunities are there, but we won't know for sure until we see the new act, uh, what, what shape or form it takes. And uh, if it's access, excessively punitive, then we would have seen no improvement. And there is a little bit of concern because the reality is this. Any government, almost any government, once they gain some kind of hold, authority or power over the news media, usually they are very reluctant to let go of it. Any hard-earned power over the media, hard-acquired power over the media, they would not let go of it easily. Because as you know, part of the media's job is to criticize government and hold government to account. And, uh, you know, any government, most governments, they don't like that. And if they can sort of blunt, you know, the media's, the media in some way, I think by and large they will take the opportunity. But we will give this new government the benefit of the doubt. I think they understand the damaging impact that the Fiji media has had uh, on media rights for more than a decade now in Fiji. As of Friday, there was still no sign of the four missing Papua New Guinea fishermen that had left Hanwabada in Port Moresby over two weeks ago. However, the coordinator for the search team, Motu Morea Lohia, still has faith that the fishermen are alive and adrift somewhere in the South Pacific. Mr Lohia's brother and nephew were part of the group that left on the 7th of February. He speaks to Caleb Fodringham about the search. How's everyone feeling at the moment? Especially the family ones, the ones that are married, especially their wives, they're downhearted and, you know, as usual, uh, in the circumstances that they feel very worried and missing their loved ones. The younger one, uh, which is, uh, is my nephew, he's 18 years old, so we were very concerned on how whereabouts they are. So that's the situation currently. And can you just talk me through the search, what's happened so far? During that uh, evening uh, they, when they went missing, we learned that uh, after they haven't uh, written, prior to that day, it was a, a big uh, monsoon with the gusty winds at that time that experienced. So during the evening when they didn't written, we sent a couple of dinghies for search that couldn't locate them. The question you raised, we did the local searches uh, through our uh, involvement of our villagers, uh, nearby villagers, also our villagers uh, through the 20-foot dinghies. They've searched as uh, far as to the east side of Port Mosby. So you sent out dinghies the very same night, is that right? Correct, yeah. We commenced that time. The next day, it was uh, monsoon at that time. The visibility and uh, the weather was unfavorable at that time. They abandoned, and the following day we commenced again. What was the weather like when they went out fishing? During the morning, it was fine. Approaching uh, at the midday time, that's when the heavy monsoon, the southeasterly wind that uh, blew, that's the time that, you know, Many of the fishermen saw what was happening, so they all retrieved. 
the boys that went missing also were caught up and probably through the motor breakdown in that manner that they couldn't make it back. And have you found anything yet? That's a very interesting part through the General City and the assistance of PNG Defence Force Air Squadron with the counterpart Australia Defence. They also went as far as uh, the eastern side of Port Mosby, the Papua region side, and they did the aerial search. And then uh, they're still in the analysis process, so at this current, but they did their part. How come they haven't found any debris or any wreckage yet? Are people still feeling hopeful that these men can be found? At this uh, point uh, of time, you know, as a Christian nation, we have the faith that uh, and believe that uh, the good Lord in, in his awesome power and auto, he might, fingers crossed, that, and we have faith and believe that they still are drift somewhere in the South Pacific region, you know, to your end at the New Zealand or Australia. What are you doing at the moment in terms of searching? The resources we're constrained now uh, with the funding, so there's nothing much we can do now. We're still remaining in the camp that we set up. From a defense force side, they continue in their search, and also the broadcast was done by our NMSC, National Maritime Safety Authority, to all the port traffic in uh, voyages or navigation uh, teams either New Zealand or Australia to look out that during the voyages uh, trading. So once they head in and if they see them, they can rescue them. You obviously knew the nephew and the other relation. What were they like as people? These are young boys. Oldest will be the Teddy Eight. Uh, he's, he was the keeper of the what? And my brother, who was uh, Teddy One, uh, and the other one was 21 and 18. They are just young men. It's our livelihood. It's their livelihood that we've been doing this uh, over the years uh, for our sustainability. So uh, as weather was unpredicted at the time that they went out and thinking that in through this fishing and then they'll come and sell them for their livelihood. So they're very humble. I believe that uh, through the stuff that they do, they're capable young men that were for survival to feed their families. Their lives in the community was, you know, very good standing citizens. That's Tangata Ote Moana for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcast. If you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at me, next week more.